Hello, and welcome to Inside the Sound of Fear, The Bloop. In 1997, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration discovered an incredibly loud sound in a remote point west of the southern tip of South America, deep in the South Pacific Ocean. Eerily close to where fiction writer H.P. Lovecraft placed the corpse city of Relea, whose most famous inhabitant is Cthulhu, in his story, The Call of Cthulhu. Now please enjoy Loki's Daughter. Landstrom sat on a deck bench with his back up against the white superstructure of the research vessel Kalmar. The radar on the roof of the ship's bridge turned silently against an azure sky, barely obscured by the wisps of gossamer cirrus clouds. He tugged on the plastic brim of his pilot's cap. I can't believe you got caught up in this babysitting adventure, too. Kongsley scratched his patchy beard. Who knows? Maybe there's something down there I can write a decent thesis about. What's wrong with U-boat hulks? Kongsley puffed out his cheeks and exhaled dramatically. Professor Metellius, my advisor at Stockholm U, knows I'm in a cherry position embedded here with you guys. Two other doctoral candidates did theses this year based on U-boat rusticles. He sent me an email yesterday to make sure I wasn't working on the same thing. I didn't have the heart to tell him I was. I think I missed my chance, man. Ah, what are you worried about? Landstrom said. You in some kind of a hurry to find a job in the private sector? What happened to the kid I knew who loved studying mythology? Look around you, man. We've got it made. They were surrounded by the glittering, sapphire-colored waves of the Atlantic for miles. A Nordic wind chilled the men and unfurled the blue and yellow flag that jutted at an angle from the top of the bridge. Kongsley shoved his hands deeper into his navy blue peacoat and frowned. I think I got lucky, Landstrom. It's not like I'm the most brilliant student at SU or anything. I got this gig because I was Metellius's TA. I happen to speak Swedish and English. Don't worry, man. There's always something interesting going on past the Skagarok. Something will come up. You'll get your degree. He leaned forward, whispering. Today we take them down past the cold seep into the breach. Kongsley raised an eyebrow. You want to go that deep with guests aboard? What if the methane in the water messes up the subsystems? Do you want something original for your thesis or not? You've seen what the LIDAR picked up through the crevasse. Tell me. You think it's man-made or natural? That step pyramid thing? Who knows? Probably a unusual rock formation. Then again, it could be the top of a sunken city. The Geats never recorded anything about an offshore island way out here. Though they weren't even around prior to 200 AD... This could be the remains of some other older proto-Nordic civilization we don't know about yet. Exactly. How many times have we taken the Ingvar down to look at those U-boat wrecks? You can't say we haven't navigated our share of cold seeps. Not fresh ones like this, Kongsley said. Landstrom dismissed Kongsley's concern with the wave of a hand. You and the Ingvar can handle it. If anything starts not running right... 
you know, adapt, adopt, and improve. Worst case scenario, we ditch the lighting rig and radio the skipper to pull us back to the surface. Yeah, maybe you're right. I'm bringing my phone to take pictures, you know, in case. The pilot threw back his head and laughed out loud. That's the spirit. Seriously, man, don't sell yourself short. You might not have the PhD to prove it, but you're the best geologist and the best marine biologist I know. This account with the Hollywood guys is important. We could use the money. We have to make sure everything goes right, and in uncharted waters, there's no one else I'd rather have with us. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Kongsley craned his head and looked up and down the ship's deck. Where are those guys, anyway? What company did you say they work for again? Film Farmhouse. Film Farmhouse? That's a studio? Not really. I mean, yes, technically, they have offices in Hollywood. There's some kind of high-end stock footage film library. You know, real studios license footage of exotic places from them for their adventure film or whatever. Hmm. Kongsley buttoned his coat to the top and squinted at the ocean's horizon. The engines of the Kalmar idled reliably underneath, sending a steady vibration up through the deck. One of the steel doors clanked open and out stepped their guests. At first glance, they reminded Kongsley of Laurel and Hardy, one thin, the other fat, both dressed in black turtlenecks and blue jeans. Kongsley tasted the salt from the sea spray on his lips and waved. The thin one spoke up. Morning! The middle-aged man was lean and clean-shaven with a close-cut head of gray hair. To complete the look of a wannabe mogul, he sported gold-rimmed aviator sunglasses. He was fitter than Kongsley, truth be told, who was half the man's age. He grinned and shook Kongsley's hand warmly. I'm Mark Wilder, the producer. You ready to go underwater today, Mr. Wilder? Call my father, Mr. Wilder. You can call me Mark. Okay, Mark. Age is a state of mind, I guess, thought Kongsley. Hollywood all about appearances. The argument against was personified in the woman by his side. She wore no sunglasses and was young and heavy, with a pretty round face. Her blonde hair was tied back in a bun. She raised her small hand to her brow and glanced at Kongsley and Landstrom, who had the sun behind them. She waved a silent hello. Kongsley said, "'You must be Kathy, right? The sound engineer?' Guilty as charged, Wilder answered for her. And you must be Tobias Kongsley, our marine biologist. You're not what I expected. He grinned again, showing off his perfectly straight white teeth. What did you expect? asked Kongsley. Wilder chuckled to himself. A white nerd. He drew out the word nerd in a humorous way, like he was not accustomed to saying it. Well, you got the nerd part right. My mom's from Ghana. Were you born there? In Ghana? No. I was born in Stamford, Connecticut. Really? East Coast? My family's from Boston. Oh, yeah? I did my first four years of school there, then transferred to Stockholm to work on grad studies. No kidding. Wilder's grin faded. Wait. Work on grad studies? I was told we'd have a real scientist with us. 
All done, except for the thesis. Okay, so you do know what you're doing. Wouldn't be here if I didn't. By the way, this is our pilot, Tomas Landstrom. Landstrom took off his hat, yet Wilder only gave him the faintest nod of recognition, then turned his attention to the stern of the ship, where the sub was suspended by white security scaffolding and the folded hydraulic crane arm. So, Kongsley, what can you tell us about what's down there? Well, the crevasse is barely large enough to drive the sub through. Nobody's been down there yet. LIDAR picked up some kind of structure beyond the breach, within the bathypelagic zone, around 2,000 meters down. The bathy-what? Uh, the deeper part of the ocean. Okay, good, Wilder said. And your name's Landstrom, right? Landstrom nodded. After waiting a beat, Wilder turned back to Kongsley and gestured with his thumb at Landstrom. Doesn't say much, does he? Kongsley grimaced, said, We've got the sub loaded with external cameras, a lighting rig, and a hydrophone array to pick up ambiences. Let's climb aboard. Landstrom will crane us in. Wilder clapped his hands together. All right, let's do it. The Ingvar was a 30-foot-long cigar-shaped submersible, colored orange on top and crimson from the waterline down. The top had two flat black strips down its length that were textured, like sandpaper, to make topside hatch access easier. The woman and two men climbed in, fitting themselves into the sub's claustrophobic interior. They were so close together, any one of them could reach out and touch any of the others. The sound engineer bit at her fingertips nervously. The nails on her stubby fingers had been bitten down to little crescent moons. Kongsley texted Landstrom that they were ready. The dull, metallic clank of the safeties fired in rapid succession. There was a sudden feeling of weightlessness when the sub swung free of its cradle. The hydraulic arm whined, lifting the sub over the side of the Kalmar and lowered it gingerly into the water. When the crane disengaged, the sub bobbed like a cork on the roiling surface. Landstrom donned his wetsuit, climbed into the water, and swam over. The top hatch of the sub was open to the sky, and the ocean sloshed in a little into Kongsley's lap. Footsteps on top of the sub's metal skin heralded Landstrom's arrival. He climbed in, dripping wet, steadied himself, and sealed the hatch. Don't worry, he said. Once we're underwater, we won't be affected by the surface chop. Kathy appeared paler than usual and looked relieved. The sub's interior was black or brushed steel everywhere, with gauges, displays, and controls over every square inch, except the windows and floor. A soft hum came from the instrument panels. Everything looked important. She peered around wide-eyed until she focused on the large oxygen gauge. She glanced from the gauge to Kongsley and chomped on the tip of her finger. Twenty-one is good, he said quietly. We're fine until that thing goes into the red. Way down here, at five. He tapped it with his index finger. Oh, she said meekly. Is that minutes? Density. The batteries can keep cycling clean air into the Ingvar for hours. More than enough time to grab all the footage and ambient sounds you need. Hours? She sounded surprised. Kongsley said, Well, 
It'll take us about an hour to reach the site and an hour to get back. That'll leave us about an hour down there to, you know, explore. You'll be back in time for lunch. Kathy put down her hand. Kongsley nodded to Landstrom. Don't worry, the Ingvar is pressurized, so we'll be immune to decompression sickness. If anything happens to us down there, we can always ditch the equipment and the tether can pull us back up to the Kalmar in a few minutes. Landstrom settled into his chair and turned his cap around so he could glance up at the multicolored sonar display without tilting back his head. His seat at the sub's nose had the best view. The other three had to make do glancing over Landstrom's broad shoulders, or else use the small, round portholes on either side of the vehicle. The sub's engines whirred, angling the vehicle downward. They drove, quiet and serene, into the depths. The ghost light of the sun was the faintest shimmer upon the surface now. The deep was clear enough that the sub's running lights illuminated life darting busily around them. Hundreds of tiny fish, an undulating school of gleaming silver favorites, and a few solitary brightly colored denizens stood out. One box-shaped fish, bright yellow with black polka dots, stared back at Kathy with over-protuberant eyes. She happily tapped on the glass and looked to Kongsley. I know, he said. They think it's weird that we're down here with them. Humans are tourists under the sea. I guess if you do it often enough, you get used to it. Landstrom radioed up to the Kalmar, giving the go-ahead that all systems look good. They started a more rapid descent. The sub's engines whirred louder and there was a muted sliding along the sub's metallic roof when they dipped below the weight of the tether's coils. Deeper into the abyss they went. They sighted a few large silver and pink colored fish. Kathy pointed to one that swam past. What are they? Atlantic tuna, said Kongsley. Good fishing around here. There's an old Swedish saying, big fish are worth fishing, even if you don't catch one. Oh, she said. What's the largest fish you've ever seen? The largest fish would have to be a whale shark I spied off the coast of Portsmouth. Forty-footer. Once I sighted a pot of blue whales not too far from here, though. Some of them must have been around a hundred feet long. Kings of the sea. Oh. Have you ever heard of the bloop? The bloop? What's that? asked Wilder. Kathy grew excited and talked more rapidly. It's a really loud sound some NOAA scientists recorded back in 97. They still don't know if it was ice calving in Antarctica or a really big animal. Whales are the loudest animals I've heard of, said Kongsley. Their calls can be up to 95 decibels. It's about the volume of a Springsteen concert. The bloop was 180 decibels, I think. Kongsley scoffed. 180? That's like... Yeah, the volume of a Saturn V rocket taking off. If it were outside the water, it could kill a man. Impressive, said Kongsley. If it was an animal, it would have to be... Wilder grinned. Huge! Either way, you can blame global warming, said Kongsley. How do you mean? Wilder said. Well, 
Either a huge piece of Antarctica melted, cracked, and fell off into the sea, or something at least twice the size of a blue whale that's been accustomed to living below the midnight zone was forced to come up higher looking for food. It had to have been an ice quake or something, said Wilder. How else can you explain they never heard the sound again? Kongsley scratched his beard. He exchanged a silent glance with Landstrom. Loki's daughter. Eh? It's an old Norse legend, said Kongsley. With the frost giantess Angerboda, the god Loki sired three children. One was Jormungand, the serpent that encircles the earth who dwells in the deep. She said to usher in Ragnarok, the twilight of humanity and the gods, the end times. Wilder shook his head. Mythology aside, science might be running out of things to discover here on Earth, but there have been plenty of advances in film lately. It's the one industry where America's still on top of the world. Go ahead, tell me the latest scientific discovery that was newsworthy. Well, well they recently performed a head transplant in China. In China. My point exactly. The sub's interior was plunged into silence for a few seconds. Landstrom broke the tension by saying, They found a fish without a face off the Australian coast. Fish without a face? asked Wilder. What the hell is that supposed to mean? Landstrom shrugged. Some weird fish they never recorded. Vestigial eyes. Mouth was underneath instead of in front of it. Every few years, they find something different in the sea. Right, said Kongsley. The coelacanth was thought extinct until they found one near Cape Town in 1935. With today's equipment, there aren't too many mysteries left, I suppose. Except whatever lies near the bottom, and the places we haven't explored yet. Wilder laughed out loud. What? Like those evil-looking fish with the teeth and lights on their foreheads? Can you imagine going fishing and catching one of those by accident? Ugh. He chortled. The man amused himself to no end. The sea around them was black now. They were nearing the spot. Landstrom lit up the powerful LED lights. They made their way through uneven valley terrain on the ocean's floor. Wilder started filming. They glided over a landscape of colored coral. Then the surface paled and became brown, then gray-brown. A cliff resembling a giant beehive loomed on their left perforated with holes large enough for a diver to thrust in an arm. The valley floor was a stretch of featureless muck, yet upon closer inspection, they could see furtive sea life moving around in the silt, started towards either side by the sub's bright approach. Well, Landstrom said, we're at 2,000 meters. The crevasse has to be around here somewhere. Over there, said Wilder. The camera slowly zoomed in to a jagged fissure near the sea bottom. Kathy, get that hydrophone hot. You've got sharp eyes, said Landstrom. He slowly maneuvered the sub in place, then moved them toward the fissure. He glanced to Kongsley. How are we doing on the methane readings? Cold, but nothing's freezing. I compensated. You know, 70 years ago... The seep would have made the water around here too cold for the Ingvar systems to handle. 
There's a positive side to climate change, though. We're now able to explore all the dark corners of the Earth that were once inaccessible. The sub's lights played over the massive crack in the ground. The breach stretched into the cliffs beyond what they could see. The widest point was near the bottom, perhaps seven or eight meters across. Landstrom hovered in front of it, carefully gauging the dimensions of the opening, the external cameras. Here we go, he said, and gingerly edged the sub through. The Ingvar's lights could only see so far into the chasm, this world beneath the world underneath what they had previously thought was the ocean floor, was vast, extending out in all directions except down. The bottom was not far below. The sea in here was unusually serene. They had visibility out to fifty meters. When they moved forward came the vague outline of an impressive-looking structure that gained clarity and dimension when they approached. Unlike the rest of the formations on the seafloor, it was made up of right angles. Although asymmetrical, it suggested human construction. Oh my, Wilder said. We're here. Kathy focused her hydrophone on the structure, keeping an ear on wherever Wilder aimed the high-powered camera. The structure was in full view now. Several step formations unevenly surrounded a central plateau twenty-five meters across. Wilder stared at the screen, laughing out loud. Man, oh man, Topolsky's gonna get a kick out of this. It's perfect! Let's see him fire me after I bring him today's footage. Who boy, that crazy son of a bitch is gonna kiss me. Yes, sir, he's gonna ram his tongue right down my throat, bend me over. Mark! Stop! Kathy said. That's not nice. Wilder glanced over at her. Oh, come on, don't make such a big deal out of it. It is a big deal, said Kathy, raising her voice. You have no filter. We're not two random guys having beers at a local bar. We're at work. You're my boss. Topolsky is your boss. She shifted uncontrollably in her station. Okay, okay, said Wilder, exasperated. Sorry. The sub maneuvered toward one of the corners and the rig lit it up. The sea life down here was bizarre-looking. An eel shape, slightly darker than the surrounding water, swam away. A few greenish bioluminescent fish darted around the sub. Kathy pointed. They're scared of us, Kathy said. Not us, said Kongsley. Look! He pointed to a porthole on the other side. Something gigantic jetted past them in the dark like a speeding train. All four of them froze at the sight of it. Kongsley stared with index finger rigid. Landstrom yanked the control stick reflexively in the opposite direction. Kathy stared wide-eyed and breathless. Wilder opened his mouth to say something and found, for once in his life, that he was unable to speak. Kongsley said, Landstrom, did you see that? Something's down here. Landstrom's voice went up an octave. Yeah, it's showing up on the sonar. It's huge. See if you can turn around to face it, Wilder said. He was already panning the camera in that direction. Landstrom edged the craft backward, pivoted left. The four faces craned towards the pilot window. Wilder scanned the area with the camera, 
Kongsley had his smartphone out, ready in photo mode. The purple and pink sonar image showed the massive serpentine shape shared their position, perhaps lurking above or below. It could be a giant eel or an oarfish. Its sheer size was disorienting. Whatever it was rose up from underneath and loomed so close to the sub that Kongsley moved his head back. The monster's form rolled by, subtle patterns of color playing across the surface of its skin. Iridescent blue, deep violet, forest green, other colors that defied description. The creature slowed, and a great eye the size of a truck tire peered at them through the porthole. It was utterly inhuman, yet Kongsley thought there was intelligence in the giant serpent's stare. He clicked away with the smartphone camera. He and the others held their breath. The sub lurched. The thing curled part of its enormous tail around the camera rig and tugged. Kongsley was practically jolted out of his seat and steadied himself with an arm to stop himself from landing on top of Wilder. The thing yanked at the rig again, this time more forcefully, and they screamed. There was a horrible sound of twisting metal and a sudden jolt. The camera rig came loose. Wilder and Kongsley stared out at the thing. It curled back on itself, holding the rig in its tail, a 500-pound bit of steel scaffolding with several shoebox-sized cameras attached, and held it up to an eye, examining. Wilder's monitor was dead. The monster released the rig and it sank to the murky bottom. There goes my structure footage. Kongsley glanced over at Kathy. Loki's daughter. Is it the bloop? I'm not sure. It isn't making any noise. I'm getting us out of here, Landstrom said. We'll refine your money, Wilder. Wait, we still have the internal cameras on the sub, right? Let's use those. To hell with that, said Landstrom. Crew safety, man. That thing could eat us. What about my footage? I could lose my job. Landstrom stared back at Wilder angrily. Too bad. That thing tore the battery loose when it stole the camera rig, so there's no new air being filtered in. We don't have much time. He found the crevasse, aimed at it, then cranked up the engines to full power. The giant sea creature closed in behind them, its volume saturating the sonar display. They could only see part of it through a porthole at any one time. They reached the breach, and everyone braced for impact. There was a faint scraping when they brushed the rocky edge. Landstrom cleared it. The sonar image of the thing lingered behind until the Ingvar was through the narrow passage and back into the ocean they knew. Landstrom radioed the skipper, and their tether-assisted emergency climb back to the Kalmar was underway. Landstrom was breathing heavily. We're gonna make it. Is it following? Kathy asked. I don't think so, said Consley, eyeing the sonar. Nice work, Landstrom. He relaxed, scratched his beard. I think I know what my thesis is going to be about. Wilder frowned. I can't go back with only a few minutes of footage. That'll be the end of my career. At least you'll live, Landstrom called back. Wilder shut his eyes, silently mouthing the words to a stress management mantra. He let out a resigned exhale, glanced around. Ah, well, I guess we can put this on the blooper reel. He chortled, 
Yet the joke hung awkwardly in the sub's interior. No one made a sound until they could make out the flicker of daylight dancing on the surface above and the reassuring shape of the Kalmar's silhouette. I, I like the joke you end on there. It is a... Uh, you're already on your way to being a dad joke writer with that. It's pretty funny. <laughs> Thanks, um, man. <laughs> I, I, I like that type of easy humor. Yes. So why don't we talk about that? I mean, you haven't done anything funny yet in this... Well, I mean, this sounds kind of rude saying it's like, you've done... I think the situations you put people in are fun horror situations, and I find them amusing. But as far as like a quote-unquote joke this is your first attempt at writing actual a joke like like going intently to write a joke right right um yeah i I always i always liked the type of um movies and tv uh that are like done in the john carpenter style which is like there's nothing overtly funny about them but what the characters say is funny yeah uh so that's that's cool so that's what i tried to do in um like scripto inferior um between the uh, like the the di- the the back and forth between um uh, you know severus and varro um clearly they're buddies like they're you know they may have a, a an employer employee relationship but they're also buddies and they rib at each other and uh and stuff like that so um this yeah this uh you know, like I've said before, um, throughout this book, like a lot of these uh, are writing experiments for me. Like I challenge myself to do to tell a story in a certain amount of words, or you know, the certain amount of characters, or whatever. This challenge was to you know create create something that was comedy, um, but you know, obviously, it's also an adventure slash horror slash uh, you know uh, climate. Sci-fi, cli-fi, I guess. (laughs) Well, I I personally love it, man, because it's it's very you. You know, if people knew people that know you in your real life, it 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 comes off genuine, and that's why I like I like that it doesn't sound forced. It doesn't sound like you. It sounds like a natural occurrence of the rules you put in place for yourself. And frankly, I think it's very cool that you've used this book to kind of showcase your kind of almost like you're writing exercises, if you will, on yourself that you've created like these kind of mental exercises for yourself to express different sides of your talent and skills. And um, thanks. I, I think that's really cool and it's really unique. I also think you get a great variety of content doing that. I, I love it when musicians do that too. You know, you challenge yourself, like create some barriers. And I think when you create some kind of guidelines and barriers for yourself, you you can come up with, you know, unique ideas that might not have occurred without those. Yeah. I, I, I like um, writing in the conditions of being slightly out of my depth uh, yeah. and trying something for the first time. I feel like that that gets a lot of the best material out there. Unfortunately, there are <laughs> infinite number of writing exercises I could give myself uh, to challenge myself with. So that's very cool. Yeah. There, there was a club I used to belong to. Um, since, you know, this is about sound, too. It, it was a little online community. It's still going called the 10-Minute Sound Design Challenge. Mm. And at first, it was just the leader of the group, and then it got opened up to others to submit raw uh, source material. And so they would submit a couple samples of source material, 
and each person that you know you'd pull the source material and you had 10 minutes to work with that single source so you, you know you have like three options like pick one of these sources and make something from it and you can only do it for 10 minutes wow and the rules weren't super strict it was more specific about you can only do it for 10 minutes and you can't bring in any more source material so you just have to work from that one source and mm. The first few I did were awful. I mean, it was just like, what is this? I didn't even make anything. And then you kind of go back to like the basics, I think, when you get you get to like the root of like what makes you good at doing that thing. And uh, you get very efficient. You, you become more efficient and more focused on what is the goal here. And uh, I really love those kind of brain exercises. It's kind of like doing crossword puzzles for you know, whatever arts you're into. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I agree hundred percent. Yeah, that's, that's cool. That's exactly like, um, like the writing process here. And, uh, you know, obviously not every writing experiment was a success. Uh, <laughs> those stories <laughs> did not make it into the book. <laughs> well, we don't have to talk about the ones that didn't make the book. Right. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about the bloop, you know, let's circle back to that. So, um, what, the bloop started in the early late 90s, I believe, right? Yeah, 1997 was when Noah first discovered it, right? That's right. In the Pacific Ocean. And I first became aware of it in the advertising campaign for Cloverfield. Ah, I didn't even remember that, that they did the bloop in that movie. for the. That was just on the, the ad campaign for it? They, the marketing team that they hired was brilliant. Like, they... Yeah, they just had, like, it was total word of mouth. Like, you know, a, a friend of mine that was into sci-fi horror or whatever came up to me. was like, oh, have you seen the, you know, the ads, for, you know, the online ads for Cloverfield? And I was already, I already knew about the movie. Like, I knew the movie was coming and I knew it was some kind of monster movie. But uh, when I saw that ad, uh, it, it referenced the bloop. And then, obviously, I went to look up the bloop. Uh, so, yeah, Cloverfield came out in 2008, uh, so that's about right. Uh, and, um, I just, uh, I looked it up and yeah, apparently <laughs> there was some insanely loud sound that Noah reco uh, or recorded off the coast of Antarctica in, I, yeah, it's like 97, I think you said. Yeah. And I, I believe the definitive answer they came up with in later, like 2012 was that they, they believe it to be geological, Yeah, even though. I'm still a skeptic for that, that I, I think it's more fun to think there's so much we don't know about the ocean and the depths of the ocean. You know, the, the ocean, it's it's no I, I think everyone knows this fact. It's not uncommon. It's it's common knowledge that, you know, we've explored more of space than we have our own planet's ocean. Yeah. Which yeah. is pretty that that still just boggles my mind. Like and so I think that that as a writer is to make you think about like there's almost a, a, a big sea of <laughs> of of untouched territory out there you could write about yeah man i just hit a bunch of puns there sea untouched territory <laughs> no i know uh but uh, yeah undersea stories are awesome um they're my they're my favorite i love undersea stories yeah uh, uh i mean for a horror writer they're ideal i mean um they they are you, you, we're in an alien environment you know man can't breathe underwater so it's already kind of scary uh, you know being down there you're reliant on technology to live uh and um 
you know, there's the pressure, there's unknown life down there. And, you know, just going back to the bloop for a second, I mean, yeah, it, it may have, I, I mean, I think they said at the time that it could have been, um, like I mentioned in the story, like it, it could have been a piece of Antarctica sliding off into the ocean. Right. Or a giant creature. Um, and they didn't know for years what it, what it was. Uh, but um, either way, it's uh, a sign of climate change. And um, th- what happens in climate change is that, you know, giant, insane sea creatures that live at the bottom of the ocean that we've never seen start coming up looking for food because, uh, you know, everything's changing. So yeah. that's, uh, that's when we get to uh, see some of the denizens that live down there and who knows what they will be. You know, it's simultaneously we've got higher technology to go deeper and deeper into the ocean. So <laughs> we're going to meet something sometime. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like every time a tsunami happens, they discover a whole bunch of new species of, of sea creatures that they didn't even know existed. And I, I personally find the sea more terrifying than space because sea is right the ocean's right here it's it's obtainable i can go out to the ocean i can be in the ocean i can't go into space so it's and plus i was in the coast guard so it has a very real fear and i would say jaws is the first horror movie i ever watched i'm pretty sure it was you know it's just and that put a very real fear in me and everybody else that when that movie came out it it put it it was so and had such an impact that people really closed beaches during that time when it came out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think it was the first horror movie I ever saw in a theater. Uh, I think. Oh, you got, that's a bit of a brag right there that you saw Jaws in the theater. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's a revival theater. I mean, I was a little young when it came out, but, uh, but I, I saw it at the new art theater in West LA, um, probably around 1978 or 77. Pretty close to when it came out. Yeah. It's pretty close. Um, but, uh, yeah, that uh, it's interesting. Jaws was one of those moments where when it came out, like in its initial run in the theaters, I begged my parents to let me go see it. And they said no. And that <laughs> that got me really curious about it. Like I was a diehard Jaws fan even before I saw it. Of course. <laughs> yeah, that makes it more scary. And it, it it follows like I think in those days of Steven Spielberg, he was following like what I love so much about Ridley Scott is and and um, Lovecraft has done his novels too, is that you let the reader or the watcher create their own visions in their head of what this thing might look like or be. And that makes it twice as scary as describing it in detail or showing it in full detail is that your own mind can be almost more terrifying than what is being depicted by an author or the film itself. Yeah, I, I think that's a really effective way to to do a horror movie. Yeah, that's certainly what Spielberg did in Jaws and and what uh, Scott did in Alien. Um, it's the opposite of what Carpenter did in The Thing, which was, you know, the, yeah. at that point, there had been quite a few monster movies that were high tech, um, you know, uh, uh, creature effects. And, um, uh, you know, uh, Carpenter and Rob Bottin, his, uh, you know, chief effects guy on the thing were like okay how can we make this different from every monster movie we've ever seen and then it's like yeah we're just we're going to show the creature totally all the time like from the start of the movie to the end of the movie except it just changes form every time so we'll get to do something different 
Yeah. That in itself make, made it scary is that it's changing form every time. You don't know who has it or who is it. Who is the thing? Right. Yeah. So that's got to be more of a challenge to do in writing because you're not relying on visuals to, to kind of let the reader have their own imagination. You know, like that's seems like it might be a little more challenging. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you, you were right on the money um, with Lovecraft. Like I think he was the king of that, uh, of just suggesting uh, huge things like cosmic things. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, you kind of relate this to like a Nordic apocalypse scenario, right? Yep. Uh, yeah. So it's um, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. It's, it's part of the, um, the, the Nordic uh, legend of Ragnarok which is uh, the end times, uh, which sounds eerily, if you just read it, you know, uh, it, it sounds eerily like climate change, uh, you know, oceans bubbling up, swallowing cities, you know, all that stuff that we, we know is, uh, you know, in our near future if we don't do something about it. And um, uh, yeah, obviously there's a whole uh, thing with the, you know, the, the, the Nordic gods were a huge part of uh, Dark Ages mythology for the Norse people. Um, and there's a whole drama with, you know, what's going on in Asgard at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, you guys can tell, like, if you listen to this whole podcast, um, you know, and Josh, you know, I, I mean, I, I, obviously I'm in love with Nordic mythology cause it appears like three or four times at least. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's it's good. I, I feel like uh, I mean I love Greek mythology and Roman mythology too, but I feel like that's uh, often referenced in literature. So I wanted to um, kind of lean on Nordic stuff a little bit more. Plus, we have the you know the Nordic Museum here in um, in Seattle, and I've gone there on several occasions for inspiration. It's really cool. It's been a while since I've been there, but I I um I went there in school before. It it, it is a really cool museum. Yeah, yeah, and also Nordic, you know, kind of lore is it's more metal. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is. They already have the hair. Yeah, <laughs> sticking with our themes here, you know, Victor and I both have a love for a lot of the same type of music. Specifically, when it comes to metal, we have a lot of uh, common uh, interests there, and so I, I I love it when we find something that's like, yeah, the Nordic story. It's pretty metal. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> was this this story had you what did you submit this to before i i remember you saying something when we had talked offline about this you had said uh you were trying to get this in an anthology before correct oh that's right um yeah there was um a a lovecraftian anthology um i i don't remember the title of it and also they did not accept my work so there's no reason to advertise beneath uh you I have it written down here beneath Yggdrasil shadow. This was submitted to a, a, a modern day Lovecraftian anthology. They rejected the work, um, but then another publisher accepted it. Uh, and um, I, I just sent it to, to them. Uh, and, um, and yeah, and it, so it appeared, I think in 2017. Um, and, um, and then the, I think I, I published the book in 2018. Okay. So you, I mean, you were talking about, you know, you brought up the thing and we got the thing and we got comedy here. Where exactly did your kind of source of inspiration come from besides comedy? I mean, was that the sole driver of the story was like, how do I write a comedy? And did you go backwards from there? Or like, how did those meet? 
<laughs> I'm really curious about that. How did this all come together? Because it it does remind me of something like The Thing or something like, you know, 2000 Leagues Under the Sea, kind of that type of world uh, of what you're going there. And The Thing, to me, does have moments of humor in it. Like, there is some funny shit that happens in that that's kind of silly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the lines, you know, the line that, the, the, you know, the guys say are funny. And yeah, there's there's one particular line where they're they're tied to the couch doing um, the blood experiment. And uh, there's it's so tense that when the character one of the characters cracks a joke, it's the whole theater busts up laughing because it's just really leaving the tension. <laughs> so I thought about that because I'm not a funny guy. Like, I'm, I'm not a funny guy when I write. So. I I was like, okay, how do I do this? Like, you know, do I make something funny happen? Um, and uh, you know, eventually, oh, oh, like one of the th- one of the moments of inspiration was at the time I was writing this, I saw a Jim Cameron uh, nonfiction special about going back to the Titanic. Um, you know, and and it was um, it was pretty cool. You know, I, I got to see kind of the inside of one of those mini subs and. And what they go through to train for it, and and all that stuff, and um, and you know, so it all kind of came together when the initial call for this uh, for for a new story came out, and so I was plugging in all these pieces, like I'm going to make this the comedy one. There's an undersea thing by Jim Cameron that I liked, uh, and um, you know, and and then just all my uh, you know fanboy stuff about the bloop. Um, which I didn't know had been debunked at the time I started writing it. Then I looked it up and I'm like, oh, they did debunk it. But, uh, you know, there's no reason the characters would know that. I mean, that this could be set one year in the past or whatever. Oh, sure. Um, you know, I wouldn't even... I would lean on that they debunked it, but in what capacity? You know, like... Precisely. They could be wrong. They could They could still be wrong. <laughs> You well, an know. animal could have caused it, or or, or who knows? You know, right. it, it could be. There's a lot of mist. I think there's still a lot of mystery around these types of sounds because the bloop isn't the only mysterious sound that exists in the universe like this. You know, and there's been several under the ocean. I mean, for the listeners, I mean, you could just. I don't have a list of them in front of me, but there is a top ten list out there of the top ten most mysterious sounds in the universe that have yet to be quite quantified for what they really are oh is that the one with laura on it uh-huh that's oh yeah that's a yeah, great there's, one there's a lot of really cool sounds out there and it also leans into that we've talked about this before you know a sound never really ends it just drops below the level the threshold of our perception mm-hmm. and in the water that is magnified you know Blue whales communicate from thousands of nautical miles away from each other. In fact, they know exactly what locations to meet up around the globe to where their communication will be the most effective and heard. They know exactly where to position themselves. And sound travels about two to three times faster underwater. Wow. Wow. And it retains... Um, I, we had a doctorate of this come and speak to my class in college. And I'm trying to remember some of the specifics, but from what I remember is sound almost retains more of its original capacity for longer underwater. You know, it retains all the frequencies mm. for a longer period of time, for a longer duration than it would in air, you know? So it's almost like sound underwater is almost a more effective medium for it to travel in. Yeah. It's interesting. And and I guess that's why um, Noah, 
recorded the sound so clearly uh, from hundreds of miles away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're always recording stuff and it's still, I mean, if, if you all go look, go look for the sound and go listen to it. It's easy one to look up if you haven't heard it. It is still, to me, it, it sends chills down me to hear it because it's, it's odd. It is odd. Um, and um, yeah, going, going back to Lovecraft for a moment, that's why I thought this was such a cool idea for the Lovecraftian anthology, because another thing that I don't know if we mentioned about the bloop is its location. Um, when Noah tracked it down, it just happens to be almost exactly in the location that Lovecraft described in his story that he wrote in the 1920s called The Call of Cthulhu. That's a trip, man. I didn't know that. Wow. That gave me goosebumps. Yeah. It's like right off the coast of South America near Antarctica. Um, So that's what, uh, that's why, you know, Lovecraft nerds uh, found the bloop really interesting because it came from underwater as a giant monster. (laughs) It's the same location that Lovecraft wrote about. Maybe Lovecraft was tuned into something, you know? And and what I was curious about that sound when it happened was, when did the source originally happen? Or did Noah just happen to pick it up at that moment? You know, had this sound been occurring before um, and it finally reached a an object that resonated and allowed us to hear it? You know, that, that that's also an interesting phenomenon with sound is, you know, you could have a low frequency sound that is below our perception, but it could finally come in contact with the right object that resonates it. And then you hear the resonation. You're not hearing what it really was. You're you're hearing something that's, you know, way further along. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it could be. Sound is fascinating. Not yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so thinking about trying to be funny for this thing, uh, I went through just about everything I could think of and nothing was really sticking. Um, And then it finally came to me, the unfunny joke. Um, You know, if I am not naturally funny when I write, what the perfect way to introduce comedy to my writing is to have somebody make a joke that's not funny. Uh, And... (laughs) That's the joke. And that's the joke in the story um, that the, uh, you know, the producer character is just says inappropriate things the whole time. And he ends by saying a really stupid joke and nobody laughs. And that's the joke. <laughs> I, I laugh <laughs> yeah. and I would have laughed in real life. I mean, I, I, I also am a, a, a fan of people finding humor in serious situations or in, in kind of kind of like inappropriate times for humor. You know, like sometimes I find it really funny when people are like, you know, the, the old wise phrase of know your audience, right? Yeah. Well, as long as it's not offensive, I can find a lot of things funny. You know, it's like even if it's uncalled for at the moment, it's like, all right, you know, I mean, life is funny. What is comedy, Victor? Like, what is comedy? Like, Think of an undeveloped country that doesn't have things tuned into like the internet or memes or movies. All they have is each other and the things they do, they laugh at. You know, it's why getting kicked in the balls will always be funny. Yeah. As long as it's happening to somebody else. (laughs) It was probably the first joke. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Kicking a guy in the nuts. You know, like it is, 
I am never too old for seeing that happen. Yeah. <laughs> America's Funniest Home Video made a lot of money off that type of joke. <laughs> How many different ways can you kick a guy in the growing? There's a lot of different ways you can do it. Yep. I, I love that. I, I also am a huge fan of the the straight man, you know, just a, uh, you know, people are telling jokes around him and he's not finding any of them funny. Like that makes me smile. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I also like the unfunny joke. So, yeah, I do too. I think the unfunny joke is, I find humor in it that way. And well, maybe that's why we're friends, Victor. <laughs> it's one of the many reasons. It's 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 a combination of material and presentation. I and I think that's that that the how it's how how like a comedian's um, brand and style and delivery is that informs what sort of jokes they can tell. I think um, so. Absolutely. Yeah. These days, you you have to be both. You have to be uh, a performer and a writer to be a successful comic. But in the old days, you know, people just wrote, you know, people in the back room, uh, people like me were just writing jokes and then the, the talent would go out and deliver them. Uh, yeah. and it's kind of a different deal, but, um, but yeah, if you see Dave Chappelle or, you know, uh, any of these like Tom Segura or any of those guys uh, out there now, they, they write their own stuff. So. Oh yeah. I think, um, you know, when you're saying about writing, when you when you're writing something like this and trying to be funny, you're, you're how much did you think about well, well, how will the audience perceive this? You know, like because writing a joke down on paper and then the way someone reads it, you know, you're you're almost putting the performance in their hands now. So I could see the challenge here. You know, yeah, um, you know, that's a really interesting point. Like I I would like to listen to some audiobooks on tape maybe with funny stuff in it uh i i've only ever read a comedy book read by the author so i haven't really tested this theory yet but if you know if somebody else reads it then it's all about how they deliver the funny joke so oh yeah i mean i've watched people you know, there's there's endless amounts of YouTube videos of people recutting a serious scene in a in a in a murder movie, a murder mystery movie with upbeat, funny music. Right. And it totally it totally changes the movie. And like right. I'm thinking that with writing, you know, like you could read this story with goofy character voices and make the unfunny person seemingly funny because of the way you read it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's also a great fact that you know, you point out you are reading your book doing this. And for those that might not have caught on early on in this podcast, you know, this is essentially going to be a book on tape when we're done with all of this. And, you know, we'll, we'll be available for purchase where if you can just buy all of Victor's reads. And I, I, I've always thought it was something quite exceptional that he does. Um, the feedback we've gotten on the podcast has been great where uh, friends and colleagues have written to me and said, I had no idea at first that it was the author reading his own book until you called it out. And there, you know, people have applauded you for that because a lot of authors, as you can imagine, aren't very great at reading their own book on, on, on over the radio, if you will. And it, I, I, I don't think that's a jab. I don't think I'm criticizing. It's just being able to do one or the other. They're not necessarily two things that always go together, you know, like, Oh yeah, no, I, I agree. You've had a lot of practice though. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Um, yeah, I in, in my first career, you know, as a music director, I did a lot of public speaking about 
career, like people trying to get into uh, game, film, and TV audio. Uh, so I had some experience like being up in front of people. But then when I moved up here to Seattle, um, I got involved with the Noir at the Bar event, which is a, it's a quarterly event that um, meets at a bar and local writers get up and read their material. And you're 100% right. Like, uh, you know, people who are really good writers don't necessarily deliver their material very well up there um, and vice versa. Like you could be a really good performer and the writing's like, hmm. Um, but some, you know, some of the readers are both. And, uh, you know, obviously the performance part is the part that I've really had to work on. Uh, but I've gotten a lot better since I started going to those events uh, and, and a lot less nervous. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and I mean, I've watched it, you know, I, I've watched it over the years since I've been watching you do this that, yeah, I, I saw you get more effective with your reading to where, you know, you could see it in the audience, you could see it in the reactions. And also, I really would commend the the person who's leading the Noir at the Bar chapter here because I watched that itself get better. You know, the curation of authors, you know, it started to seem a little bit tighter of a group and a tighter set where the last one I went to before COVID happened, obviously, yeah. you know, that was just such a tight set that they put together that everyone was on it. You know, the whole night was just on fire. And I watched that happen, I feel like. I watched this chapter grow and become... Yeah kind of like this great set list of like they the way he structures all of you to read together is really well done like it, it's it's well put together yeah um yeah it's nick feldman that did the latest okay. the the latest uh, installment um and uh yeah he's great uh he's also a really great performer and oh um, yeah I, I love hearing his opening because he always does the opening right it's really fun yeah, he's a huge uh, noir guy, as you can imagine, um, and he's he's always recommending new new like neo noir movies to me uh, to check out. So I yeah, he's he's great. Yeah, that is great. Well, Victor, thank you so much for doing this. Kind of, uh, I, I I should also preamble this that we had to stop our production in the middle of this podcast because COVID happened. Luckily, we had enough recordings that we just, just decided, hey, why don't we just start putting them out? And that's why you all started seeing these come out, because uh, we already had enough material recorded. We were originally going to wait till we had all of them recorded and release them all kind of, you know, at the same time. Uh, well, we kind of reached the end of our recorded material, which was this story. This is kind of the last one we had ready to go, but we hadn't done the interview yet because we didn't have time. So this interview was done fully remotely. Victor's at his house. I'm at my place and we're syncing this up in post-production. So uh, thank you all for, for bearing with us through all of this. You know, it's, I'm sure everyone's heard it a million times for the last year, COVID, 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 blah, blah, blah. Excuses for that. This is our, my excuse, <laughs> but yeah, we're getting through it. We've got a few more stories for you coming up. Uh, one of my favorite ones, it, actually, it is my favorite story in the book, is Farewell Concert. So I'm really excited for you all to hear that one. It's it's very cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't wait to um, uh, get together with you and figure out how we can record that. Because that's, uh, yeah. that's an interesting one. Yeah. Uh, so everyone stay tuned. Bear with us through this time. We've only got a few more to get through the rest of this book, but we're going to get there and... We, we appreciate your, your continued listening. Thank you very much. All right. We'll talk to you all next time.